Sometimes poetry can put into words what's happening to us even before we understand it ourselves. Breaking in. Disinherited at last. I'm free from all this. You don't want me anymore, and I'm fine with it. I've been fine the whole time. I'll go back to my roots now, free from the tyranny of containment. I'll dig into the tunnel now, breaking in and through, the whole city torn open, its rude belly drug on the ground. That's the sound of a poet priced out of her home city. Jen Fitzgerald knows exactly where she's from. She grew up on Staten Island, the daughter of New York City cops, fifth generation in a proud line of working-class Irish immigrants. I'm undeniable. I was born here. So you can't tell me I'm not a New Yorker, but now you have to tell me where I can sleep. From the Economic Hardship Reporting Project and The Nation, this is Going for Broke, stories about people living tough times and conversations about solutions that give hope. In a few minutes, we'll speak with an expert about New York City's housing crisis. But first, Jen Fitzgerald shares what it's like trying to survive there as an artist and single mother. You could have enough money in the bank to pay for your full first year of rent in cash, and the landlord is going to say no. If you don't come in with literal credentials with three months of bank statements, pay stubs, references, and enough income for the rent to only be one-third of your monthly expenses. These landlords and uh, lease people don't even want to talk to you. You don't exist. Jen is the author of a poetry collection called The Art of Work, but her writing doesn't pay the bills. She and her 11-year-old daughter live on child support, wages from her work teaching writing in the city's jails, and her freelance business. After Jen's marriage ended, she and her kid lived for two years in a bare-bones place she fixed up above a bar she used to manage on Staten Island. But then a chain of events unfolded that left her reeling. I had never really had stable housing as a child. So being in flux or in movement was not strange to me. But my experiences directly before the pandemic and during the pandemic were completely different. The bottom fell out of my housing. It started with a big change of life plan that fell apart. Jen thought she had her ex-husband's okay to move to Oregon with their daughter in 2019. In preparation for leaving, she gave up her apartment and her job. But a court injunction and custody battle stopped her in her tracks. Stuck in New York, she had to find new housing and new work, at least for the duration of the legal proceedings. She crashed with her mother for a while, and then moved from one temporary place to another while she searched for an apartment she could afford that was big enough for her and her daughter. Everything felt volatile. When you don't have a place to live, you don't have a life. When you don't have a comfortable place to call home, 
There is no sense of security anywhere else. You could have mountains of food in your kitchen, but if your overall housing security is not good, you're starving. You could have comfortable places to sleep all over the, the building, but if it's insecure, you will never rest. Jen remembers the day she had to go to the courthouse to sign papers to represent herself in her divorce case. And as I tried to fill out the paperwork, I had to write homeless where the address was. I wrote it big, all in caps, and that was March 12, 2020, um, three days before everything completely fell apart. And three days before she had to vacate the borrowed place she was staying in. With the city suddenly closing down around her, Jen knew she had to find the next apartment and fast. She knew she needed to ask for help, but it went against everything she'd ever learned from her family. We struggled, we survived, we ascended, right? That, that's the narrative. But now here I am, all the way back at the bottom, and not really sure how to cope or handle it. And you know, honestly, it was at this time where I said, I have to start speaking for myself. I have to start being really clear and really candid about what's happening in my life. Like, I'm not gonna sugarcoat this. I'm not gonna make it easier on people. Like, my life has fallen apart. We're, we're past the point of like, it, it might not go well. We're at the bottom. We're laying there. We're looking up at you guys. In desperation, almost, or in hope, I, reached out on social media. It was something that I had never shamed others for doing, but something that I had never imagined myself doing. And to preserve some ounce of my pride and dignity, I asked that if anyone I had ever helped in the past saw it in their heart to help me now, that I would be grateful. And this is when some of the miracles began to unfold. Things started moving, I could even feel them. It was like, like engines and gears turning all around me. And I had multiple people calling me saying, I have a room here, I have a spot there, this place is empty for a week, this place is empty for a month. It was like some sort of amazing underground system of housing in New York City. What could have been the lowest point of my life, reaching out in that way, turned out to be the highest point in my life because I was flooded with love and with help and support and understanding far beyond what I was asking for. The next thing Jen knew, a friend had secured an apartment where she could stay rent-free for as long as she needed it. Not just any apartment, but a place in Battery Park City, near the tip of Lower Manhattan, with a view of the water. Moving in was surreal. If the writer in me hadn't been reignited yet, it certainly was at that point, nearly crystallized. Here I was, functionally homeless, in one of the most expensive apartments in New York City, overlooking the river and the Statue of Liberty. The meaning of that was not lost on me, even if I couldn't process the depths of it in those moments. I understood that if there is a grand narrative, Above and beyond all of our smaller narratives, it was unfolding right then and there, and it was unfolding for me. 
we're looking at Ellis Island and an old boat port. And to the left of that, we are looking at the Statue of Liberty. And beyond her, you can see bits of Staten Island and the Verrazano Bridge. And all the way down to the left, you can see the promenade as far as it'll take you. We're standing in front of the building that I lived in in Battery Park City for six months during the height of the pandemic and quarantine. This is where Jen and her daughter weathered that long, troubled spring and summer of 2020. They took solace in a nightly ritual. Remember, at 7 p.m., people would open their doors and windows and express their appreciation for the city's healthcare workers. That miracle apartment in Battery Park City allowed Jen to save almost all of her COVID unemployment money. I had filed for it right away. And after a few months of waiting and hoping, when the lump sum arrived in my bank account, I dropped to the floor and I wept. I mean, the relief was biblical. It was like $6,000. And in that moment, I'm like, oh my God, I can get an apartment. This is like first month and last month. This is security. Like, I'm, oh my God, I'm going to be okay. And then the unemployment continued to come in. And it renewed my sense of ownership and allowed me to begin looking for places on Staten Island. Jen's good luck, it felt like divine intervention, continued. By summer's end, she had secured an apartment back on Staten Island. She found it through Airbnb and approached the owners directly about renting it long term. I sent them my, my book, my website. I said, see, I'm legitimate. I'm not scary. I can be held accountable. And we were able to work out a lease agreement. And I was able to take the money that I had gotten from unemployment. And I was able to secure this place for us. The apartment is on the second floor of an old red brick decommissioned firehouse. This place definitely evokes a feeling of sanctuary. If you need somewhere to be able to leave your child because you're in a desperate situation, the fire department is a safe place for that. The building itself is so structurally sound that it feels impossible. Like there could be an earthquake underneath me and I don't think I'd feel it. This place is so secure and I feel so safe in it. It almost makes me want to do absolutely anything I have to to stay here. That's where Jen's story lands for now. She and her daughter have been living in the firehouse for more than a year. She's back at work. She's filling notebooks with poems. Her next book includes A Call to Audit, a call to understand exactly who owns what property in New York and why rent is so prohibitive, and whether we as a society consider housing a human right or a privilege. When my daughter writes the poem of this day, I will be distant in black and mourning. I will be leaning into the open window as I drive us up and over, hauling only what we could carry through three burrows. I tell myself she will remember nothing I want her to forget, as though I could shield her from failures I call attempts. These formative failures I swore to never Forgive me 
Not all scenes can be painted in favorable light. She sees the view from back seat, clenched jaw, my rising tide. Forgive me. For some of us, grief is unshakable anger. It takes up residence within us. For we well-practiced few, anger throws us into the dust of the new. Forgive me. I have dragged my child into my childhood. I am incapable. Me again, me again, here, now, somehow, forgive me. I burned through the saints and call any deity that will have me. Let her painlessly unsee all but my hair catching wind as a wild but tenable flame. Let her remember me only as the woman who carried water up the hill for everyone to finally drink. Thanks to Jen Fitzgerald for sharing her story and her poems. You can read more of her housing poetry at economichardship.org. Jimmy McMillan, activist and frequent political candidate in New York, would get laughs when he said it. But it was true then, and it's even truer now, for millions of Americans. The rent is too damn high. Matthew Murphy of the Furman Center at NYU is with us. You know, one of the great attributes of the American city was a broad diversity of housing type and housing cost, unlike stratified, economically segregated modern suburbs, you had rich people who could live anywhere they wanted, but lived in cities. Middle-class people could live in cities, and people barely getting by, for better and worse, could find a place to live. Matt Murphy, what happened? Well, we have become an increasingly low-supply, low-opportunity country. We just have way too many people who are competing to try to get into fewer and fewer units. We have some supply from the federal government, but not enough. And even in a place like New York City where we're adding housing, we're really adding it at the top end of the the market. So there's been a big call for tools at the federal level, state level, to both address the kind of regulations around the new kind of housing that gets built And also provides the kind of financing needed to be able to subsidize lower rents so that normal working people can actually afford the rent. You know, prices are even rising in the neighborhoods with the lowest income residents, with aging and poorly maintained housing stocks. It's still landlords who have the pricing power and poor people have a hard time pushing back. Is it in part because they just have fewer choices. They, they don't have mobility. So they can't say, uh, to heck with you, landlord, I'm going somewhere else. I think that's definitely part of the issue. In New York City, we do this thing every three years. It's called a housing and vacancy survey. It's been done since the 1950s. In the most recent survey done in 2017, the vacancy rate for apartments that rented below $800 a month was 1.15%. So meaning basically one out of every 100 apartments that I would call affordable 
are available at any given time. That just means there is no, there are no options for, you know, low cost housing. You know, public housing has, they've closed the wait list because there's just, it's so full that it could kind of last the next 10 years, even if they called everybody for a new unit that they can. We see this also in middle income housing too, or new housing. Um, sometimes competition is so fierce to move into a, an apartment that's affordable to a relatively high income person that people just either give up or shift their search to more affordable neighborhoods, which in turn puts pressure on renters in those neighborhoods who can't compete with those newcomers. As we look ahead, a bigger percentage of America's population lives in metropolitan areas, and an enormous number of households, either rent burdened, that is, uh, spending more than 30% of their household income on housing, or extremely burdened, that threshold spending more than 50% of their household income on housing. You've already mentioned that the private market is not producing enough units. The federal government doesn't seem particularly interested. So are we stuck? We, we don't seem to be responding to the crisis at hand. You know, I think the reality is that a purely market response is going to be very limited in terms of serving the needs of low-income households. I, I think it would help, but it's not going to be enough. And a purely government response, we just haven't been able to shepherd the resources. You know, kind of an, an often cited uh, number here is that only one out of every four households who are eligible for housing choice vouchers actually receive them. So that means 75% of people that need the support don't get it. And we have not been able to kind of find our footing around, well, how do we get closer to matching the demand? And there's been some call for, you know, universal access to vouchers. The problem is how do we build sustained momentum to treat the provision of high quality, affordable housing more as an entitlement, you know, the equivalent of something like food stamps. And I think there's a question of like, how do we get there both in our, the dialogue that we, that we speak and also just the actual resources we put towards that? Because it will, be, it will require a lot. Part of the logic behind the voucher system was that if it worked right, you wouldn't get hyper-concentration of low-income people, which, as you mentioned earlier, uh, middle-class people, rich people, poor people, nobody wanted that. But in practice, when you try to put a project somewhere, it gets serious opposition. But if you send people out in ones and twos, there's often no market for the voucher. There's no one who'll take it to let them live in their space. Absolutely. We see far longer periods of time or days that voucher holders are searching for housing in New York City than I think we've ever seen. You know, six months, nine months, even when you have the voucher, which is supposed to be the thing that allows you to find housing, people are not finding the housing. And part of this is discrimination. And it's not our goal to just economically empower people to 
move further out. The whole point is to, especially in a place like New York, maintain our economic diversity, provide low-income households with the opportunity to live in thriving, high-opportunity neighborhoods. It's just very difficult sometimes building the broader support we need to really highlight this as what it is, which is that it's a major barrier to economic growth in the country. It's a major barrier to racial and economic integration, and then a major barrier to equity, meaning the kind of injustice that we've seen around the housing market that's been very well documented. There's a lot of desire to to write that and use housing policy to do that. It's just going to take a massive investment again. And I'm very hopeful that we can figure it out. Let's close by talking a little bit about the effect of the pandemic. We saw lots of people lose their work or at least lose work at the uh, amount that they were used to. So a lot of people lost their overtime. They lost hours. They lost days. A lot of people uh, took advantage of the federal moratorium on evictions and they weren't paying their landlords, but the landlords still have costs as well. Is the pandemic a moment of aberration that makes it harder to talk about any of these subjects? Or is it a way that we can concentrate our thinking about how a proper housing market would really work and take away some lessons if, if life is hopefully returning back to normal or closer to normal? I think it's a great question, and I think it is both. What COVID really highlighted was that shutting down the economy was going to completely eliminate income for low-income renters who are really, you know, a huge part of our service economy. And it was a reason that there was a federal eviction moratorium passed under the Trump administration and then in, in the state of New York, we, we still have an eviction moratorium until um, January of next year. So people have treated this, I think, appropriately. And then we have seen a lot of income support um, for people who have been affected in a way that I'm encouraged by. And then we have also seen $50 billion passed in Congress specifically to help people wipe out their rent arrears that they've accumulated through the pandemic. In New York State, we had about $2.4 billion available from the feds, and the state itself put up about $300 million. It really is an extraordinary amount of money to help ensure that we're not going to face a massive amount of housing instability during this kind of emergency time period. So I am encouraged by that. Then, at the same time, I think we've learned that insurance is a really important component in people's lives. And the fact is renters don't really have a form of insurance unless it's their emergency savings. I'm hopeful that similar to the way we insure as a nation mortgage holders, I'm hopeful we can figure out an insurance model for renters to kind of be there when people face the daily emergencies we expect to, you know, over the next decades. That's Matthew Murphy of the Furman Center at New York University. Thanks for joining us. 
Thank you, Ray. Going for Broke comes to you from the Economic Hardship Reporting Project and The Nation. Our producer is Jeb Sharp. Mixing and sound design by Tina Toby Mack. Our executive producers are Alyssa Quart and David Wallace. Frank Reynolds is multimedia editor at The Nation. The Nation's editor is D.D. Guttenplan. I'm Ray Suarez. Thanks for listening. Please tell your friends about us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit thenation.com slash podcasts to learn more. Sign up for EHRP's newsletter at economichardship.org.